Hi, Joe. My ear must have changed over the course of the week or something. I don't know. It's not fitting. All right. Great to see you all. Who will remind me? I have a couple of things to pass out. But we'll pass, exactly, somebody under 40. I want to pass them out at the end. They're just a couple of summaries. Uh, this is part two of the Christian and technology pursuing Christ in a digital day. Uh, just by way of reminder from last week, I told you that most of this material in some way, shape, or form comes from a, really two authors and a collection of a couple of books here. One of them is Tony Ranke, who wrote God, Technology, and the Christian Life. He also wrote 12 Ways Your Cell Phone is Changing You. I actually provided you with a summation of this book in the handout, again, if you'll remind me at the end, because I will forget. Competing Spectacles is another book that he wrote. And then this book by Tim Challey is called The Next Story. If I were to read one of these, just one of them, this would probably be the one I'd take on. Um, or the 12 ways your cell phone is changing you. But again, I just provided you with a summation of that. So you can read one page and go, okay, I get it. All right. I popped these mints in my mouth a little too late. Uh, hope they're gone within the next 15 minutes or so. In fact, I better just get rid of them. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Glad my mother's not here today. She'd have been embarrassed. She's doing well. Thank you for those of you who are praying for her. Her pain has been next to nothing. She slept through the night. We're just really grateful. Lord, help us this morning as we... Again, seek to glean things from your word about our day. Your word is timeless. It's applicable always. It's always relevant. So teach us and uh, grow us and help us, Lord, to serve you and not the things of this world. Thank you for wise men and knowledgeable men, insightful men. Thank you for uh, Tony Ranke, for Tim Challies, for their labor in this field and many others as well. Just pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to, uh, to master these things in our submission to our master, which is you and you alone. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Most of you are here, I think, last week. I'm just going to give you a very, very brief review. We're going to look at two passages, and then we will move on to newer material. We began by building last week a mini theology, if you will, of, of technology, um, and we, we came up with a number of conclusions. Number one, there's one true creator. We are discoverers who can copy, we can mix and match, we can add and subtract. God is the only true creator. He gave us all the material with which we are free to play. 
but really in the end, nothing is created that isn't within his power um, and within his purview, as we'll see. Secondly, we only discover, and this is related, what God has infused into creation. We're given the ingredients and we're given the boundaries. Um, we are not those who come up with the idea of color. Color was something that God came up with. God is the one who created those light you know, rods and cones in the back of your eye and enabled you to see color. And we just paint with color. We design with color. We appreciate color. We can fiddle around with color, but color is his and we get to play with it. Number three, we learned that God made us in his image. Therefore, we are like him, which means that we are by nature creative, mankind is, and we are called to exercise dominion in this world, which requires creativity. Overcoming a, a decaying world and all the various uh, insects that are trying to eat your crops and diseases that are trying to eat your body and all the other threats in this life that tend to be uncomfortable for us, um, it requires technological innovation and God has given us that great task in the creation mandate. Number four, human innovation is a gift from God in a fallen world. It enables us to combat the effects of the fall and to promote human flourishing. We also talked about the fact that human innovation can be used for good and for evil and that we need to be very aware that in our creative process, there will necessarily be consequences. You create planes, you also create plane crashes. You, um, you also, in figuring out how to use nuclear energy, uh, figure out how to make nuclear bombs. And, and so how we use things matters. We also learned that God rules over the advancement of technology, and here I want to go to a passage. He is sovereign over all things, including tech. Look at Isaiah 54. We talked last week about the fact that technology is the use of tools for the advancement of human flourishing. Things like the ark were, were new. They were a development. Things like the Tower of Babel. Uh, things like farming and managing crops. It's easy for us to live at this point some 6,000, 10,000, whatever it is exactly, I don't know, but years down the road from the, 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 the creation of the universe and we... Uh, it's easy to take for granted all the innovation that's occurred before us. We drive down the road on four wheels and don't even think about the way it must have been for those who crossed the United States on wagons and what it was like to ride in a wagon with wooden wheels or going back before. I, I was telling somebody, uh, one of our younger people last week, that when I started skateboarding, I was on Metal wheels. Do you remember metal wheeled skateboards? You say, how old are you? Yeah, that old. Metal gave way to a great invention, clay. 
Remember clay wheels? Most of you are like, no, I don't. But yes, we actually skateboarded on clay wheels, which were great till they hit a rock and shattered, and that got messy. And then somewhere when I was in like sixth or seventh grade, somebody came up with a concept of polyurethane, and that changed everything. Trucks got wider, boards longer, more stable. We were able to do more deadly things uh, safely. All right. So, so we're, we're always in this process of development, and Isaiah 54 and verse 16. Here are the words of the Lord. Behold, I myself have created the craftsman who blows the fire of coals and brings out a weapon for its work. And I have created the bringer of ruin to wreak destruction. No weapon that's formed against you will succeed. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the inheritance of the slaves of Yahweh and their righteousness is from me. What does that text show us? Well, it shows us that God is sovereign over the craftsman. He is the one who has taught the craftsman to do what he does and to produce the weapon for its work, but he is also sovereign over the one who wields that weapon and determines whether it will, in fact, slay the intended victim or not. God's over all of that stuff. Therefore, we do not fear. This is why we don't put our confidence in chariots or in horses, or in Elon Musk. We have the God who rules over all on our side. So God rules over the advancement of technology and its uses. Next, all technology ultimately is the servant of God and glorifies God. Stay in Isaiah, look over at chapter 28. Another text we just referenced last week because we ran out of time, surprise, surprise. Chapter 28 and verse 23. Give ear to my voice, pay attention, and hear my words. The Lord's going to pose some questions here. Does the farmer plow continually to plant seed? Is that what the farmer does? He just gets in his tractor and drags that plow just 365 days a year, perpetually, over his fields? No. Does he continually turn and harrow his ground? No. Does he not level its surface and sow dill and scatter cumin and plant wheat in rows? Some seeds are scattered, others are planted orderly and in rows. Barley, he says, in its place and rye within its area. Notice this, for his God disciplines and teaches him proper judgment. Who's the teacher of the farmer? And again, as I mentioned last week, there's no mention here of this man being a, a Christian or a God, godly man at all. This is just the farmer. How, how does he know to do what he does? I told you last week about coming outside and there's this beautiful cat out under my wife's bird feeder with a bird coming out of his mouth. Who taught that cat to do what he does? And it's a pretty complex deal. I mean, the bird is 
the bird is up on the bird feeder. This is like eight feet in the air. And the cat's got to come from underneath. Is this too tough on you, Katie? The cat's got to come up from underneath. And how does he do it? I mean, what does it take a little Tweety Bird to fly off? A millisecond? How does a cat know to, to crouch and to creep up and, and then suddenly to leap? And I think to myself, man, that's like 10 times its body height. That would be like me jumping to the top of this building. That would be cool. I can't do it. God hasn't designed me to do it. How does he know to hide under the bush? And all of this, the Lord says, is the kind of thing that, that he teaches. He says, for dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge. That's not how you do it. Nor is the wheel of a cart driven over cumin. That would destroy the crop. But dill is beaten out with a staff and cumin with a rod. Grain for bread is crushed, but he does not continue to thresh it forever because the wheel of his cart and his horses eventually disturb it. He does not crush it longer. Notice this, verse 29. Here's the punchline. This also comes from Yahweh of hosts who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. You see, we don't see God as intricately involved in every detail of our lives, do we? We don't, we don't see him behind the scenes in all the affairs of life, but we should. It may leave us with some perplexing questions, but to somehow to truncate him down as though he's just some distant God, like a basketball player who set the, the ball on his finger and he's just kind of keeping it spinning, but he's not really paying attention. God's involved in in all of these things. And he ultimately is behind technological development. All of those, even those godly or godless men who, who do what they do with their technology, God is the one who created them. He enabled them to create the technology and he even allows them to wield it as they will to accomplish his purposes. And God gets glory for it. We finished with this. Well, no, we didn't. Number, number whatever this is, God alone is to be trusted. He rules the universe. We are confident in him. And our final point was this, that all innovation, all of it, should fix our awe, awe and thanks on the creator. And this is where we really wanted to, to stop last week and begin this week. Can we look at the technological technology that we have, the technology that we use, and can we, in good conscience, thank him for this good gift? If not, it raises the question of whether we should even be utilizing it, whether it's a good thing for us or not. So, having established a, a mini theology of technology, we want to ask questions now about along the areas of, of personal application. Look over at Philippians 3, chapter 3 and verse 12. How do we best pursue Christ in a digital environment? That really is the question of the day. You remember these words? We were just here not too many months ago. Chapter 3 and verse 12.
Paul says regarding his attainment to the resurrection of the dead, he says, not that I've attained it already or I've already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ. What were you laid hold of by Christ for? To glorify him. And ultimately when you see him, what's going to happen to you? You will be like him. He he has called you with this upward call to be like Christ. He's speaking here about sanctification. And Paul says, this is what I do. I'm pressing on toward that end. I am striving, stretching forward, if you will, toward the finish line. He says, brothers, I, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind. I'm reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He wants to know the Lord. He wants to be like the Lord. He wants to be with the Lord. Everything in Paul's life is directed toward this, to be like Christ. And so this this raises uh, or, or, or I should say puts in context all of our pursuits in this life, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, what? Do it as unto the Lord, all of it. So it is with technology. It's, it does not exist merely for your, for your pleasure. It does not exist merely for your convenience. It does not exist to make you comfortable on a hot day, your, your air conditioning. Ultimately, all of these things exist. See, we need to remember these things. This is why getting the theology down first matters so much because it, it puts everything in its proper framework. We need to understand that our use of technology it really is, is one directional. It is to enable us, to, to equip us, to help us in the pursuit of Christ. Now that will include the pleasures that come, the legitimate pleasures that come from, from technology. It will include the convenience and all of that stuff. But all of it ultimately ought to be drawing us more toward Christ, toward the knowledge of Christ, toward the, the likeness of Christ. So I stuck this down in my notes, just in my own thinking. One thing is for certain. If you're going to fulfill that end, you have got to become the master of your technology. Or it will master you. My wife and I have experienced it. We thought when Justin was 7th, 8th grade, we thought, you know, we, we, we hadn't had a TV the whole time. We thought it'd be better while he's younger not to have all that. Then we thought, well, you know, this young man's going to be on his own at some point, and somehow we need to teach him how to rule the television and watch C-SPAN and PBS. (laughs) That thing ate us alive. We were under the power of the TV so fast, my wife and I, it was embarrassing. It dominated our hours. It lured our attention. It became the instant babysitter rather than going fishing. Hey, let's just watch something. (laughs) We couldn't believe it. We all know what it is. How many of you have experienced that that thing that goes bing, right? You know that sound? 
Ranky points out, or one of them, no, it's not Ranky, it's Charlie's points out, there is no native natural sound in this earth that sounds like bing. He says that is a man-made creation, and because it is, it demands attention. And you know how tempted you are. You're in a conversation with your wife. You're grinning because you know what I'm talking about. You're in a conversation, and all of a sudden, right there next to you on the couch is your phone, and it goes and you think to yourself, I love my wife, but man, I am tempted to look, who is it? And what do they want? It's amazing how powerful that is. We got to take that bull by the horns. You cannot be passive in this fight. And you are being impacted if you think you're not, if you think your worldview is not being shaped by technology, you really need to read one of these books. You need to begin to get a grasp for how much modern digital technology is impacting you, your worldviews, your assumptions, your attitudes, your way of relating to people, the world around you. It is a very, very, very powerful thing. Now, I want to divide the morning into two parts, really three. We're just going to raise two questions. One, how is digital technology changing our world? And we're not going to be able to talk about everything, obviously. Just a few things. And then we want to ask, how can we live with godly virtue and biblical discernment in light of these changes? And then I want to leave, thirdly, a, a time at the end for questions. So we need to move. All right. How is it that digital technology is changing our world? And what do we do about it? I'm going to give you five words. That's all. And then we'll, we'll try to provide some helpful recommendations at the end of each section. All right, what's our first word? It is the word, word. It is the word, word. By that, I mean communication. You know that we live in a world that is interactive as it has never been before on a scale that humankind has never known. There has been a, a radical shift in... Um, in so many things, but there's been a radical shift in where power rests. Power used to rest with a select few, most of whom had advanced degrees or had accomplished something in this life. You would hear how to build a business from people who had been, in fact, successful at building businesses. You would, you would hear uh, a, a course in theology from somebody who actually understood biblical theology and were good at it, and, and they had studied it, they had a degree in it. We, have now, we now exist in a world where, where everybody has a microphone, and it's interesting to think about that everybody's got a platform, everybody's got a stage, everybody's got a microphone, and it's, it's challenging to discern who actually knows what they're talking about and, and who is uh, blowing smoke. The question of where does truth lie has become a real challenging question. There's been a massive shift which has been true in our culture for a long time, but, but power and authority and, and quote-unquote wisdom 
rests with those who are most capable at utilizing digital media. Who are the most capable at, digi at digital media? It's the youth. And therefore, there's been a massive shift in that the youth are now directing the ship. <laughs> They're at the helm. And, uh, you know, we've seen this politically with one party being able to, to utilize uh, digital media much more effectively than another. And, and it's, it's, uh, we're playing catch-up, aren't we? Cell phones, the internet, has enabled us to communicate at all times, in all places. It's amazing to me, I go backpacking and I'm up there at 13,000 feet in the middle of the Sierra, a long way from anything electrical widget, or at least you think you are. And you used to go do that thing to get away from the connectivity and all of a sudden, you know, your cell phone goes off or your wife calls you and you're standing on top of Mount Whitney. <laughs> it's impressive. It's also depressing. Uh, not because my wife called me, but you, you get the idea. We can call, we can text, we can email. There's social media, there are push notifications, you can send pictures. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And you can communicate now with unprecedented scope and speed. And the multiplication of words is exponentially grows every year. Is this good or bad? What do you think? Which is really a bad way to frame the question, but I'm doing it anyway, somewhat intentionally. Is this a good thing? or Who can, who can argue that this is good? What are some good things about this incessant ability to communicate? What are some good things? You've broken your leg on top of Mount Whitney. You're glad you have connectivity. Yeah, Corey. Nice. All right. I can get a list at the grocery store for my wife, and that is convenient. Alan. <laughs> yeah. Dynamite. Yep. A lot of information. Very helpful. Jeremy. I can watch your anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for putting that in the good category. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> Juliet. I can visit with my grandchildren. Yeah. Me too. I got a daughter in Texas. She's about to have a baby here in a month or so, and that's just really good. Yep, I'm with you. Okay, those, those are all good things. Uh, Solomon writes, Proverbs 16, 24, gracious words are like a honeycomb. We can utilize all of this communication, can't we, to, to strengthen people, to build people up, to to, it's an excellent tool to encourage people or to share our joy. I delight when I get a photo of a new baby that's been born in this congregation. It gives me the, the joy of, of, uh, 
of, of just seeing a new one born and sharing in the joy of, of those who were in the hospital. The thing is, I used to go to the hospital, so something's lost there too, right? I used to go, now I can't go. Not even with a mask, they just don't let you in. It's like those days are done, I guess. But this, this is a good thing. You can send a scripture passage, you can encourage people, you can use your words carefully and wisely, and those words can give life. The scriptures are also clear that those words can be death. So what's bad about this? Well, Proverbs 10, 19 says that when words are many, what? Transgression is not lacking. <laughs> when, when there's just an overflow of language uh, flowing out of the hearts of men, um, it's bound to, to, to trip you up eventually. Remember, James says, what defines a perfect man or a perfect woman? They don't stumble in what they say, right? It is very hard when you multiply words not to fall into sin. The proverb goes on to say, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Now, it used to be that you had to be with a person to be speaking, unless you were, you know, odd. You had to be with somebody. But now, you, if you want to, you can just take up this, this machine and, and go. And you can go endlessly. You can be speaking to a world out there that you don't even know. Charlie's makes this point. He says, I wonder if we've forgotten that we do not need to communicate all the time. I think about this a lot when I'm looking at the scripture and I'm thinking about Jesus and his disciples and the assumption is that Jesus was perpetually just chattering on, and, 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 and there's Peter <laughs> talking back. Every time they traveled somewhere, I mean, it was 80 miles from Galilee to, to Jerusalem. You don't walk that in a day, right? That might be a three or four day journey. They walked. If you've ever been backpacking, you know there are periods of great conversation and then there are long periods of just, just walking, thinking, meditating, examining. How much stillness is there in your life? How much quiet? I mean, really, I mean, no music, no text, no interruptions, just unbroken periods of quiet. I think about all the things that get crowded out because of the pace at which we move. It's one of the nicest things, frankly, about going to Alaska. The camp is frenetic. But even as frenetic as camp is, as busy as it is, there are these periods of just quiet like you haven't known. And man, the plane hits the tarmac here and you get out and you just feel like you're in the middle of New York City. It's only the Sacramento airport. But man, it just feels like, whoa, this conveyor belt is moving way too fast. Alaska slows you down. This is a really good reason why you need to go to Wyoming 
and, and just sit by a river for a little bit. It's good for you. It's good for you. It's really easy for our words and our communication just in general to become idolatry. To think all the time that we have to be listening and taking in and talking and projecting and blah, 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 blah. That's not good. And it, 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 this kind of thing, uh, there are lots of other impacts I've written down, but I want to just keep moving. Uh, I just think about how, with texting, how it tends to stoke um, our, our impatience with people because they don't get back fast enough or how much of our prayer life has been retarded because we can just always turn to people. We can always find some outlet for our, uh, both our sorrows, our griefs, our requests, our praises, our thanksgiving. We're just always going on a horizontal level and I wonder how much of that doesn't get lifted this way like it should when I used to feel much more uh, isolated with the God who never, never abandoned me and was always with me. We're much more people-oriented, perhaps, than we, we should be. Here's some recommendations. First of all, understand the profound impact of your words. The Bible is crystal clear about this. They are good or they are bad. There, there isn't a, a place for sort of neutral chatter. Think of Ephesians 427, let no unwholesome word proceed from your keyboard, right? That's what it says. But only that which is good for the edification of others, those things that would give grace to those who hear. That verse where Jesus talks about calling every idle word into judgment. It makes you careful about your communication. We are not a careful culture in our communication, and we should be more careful. Use your words to build up your brother and to lift up Christ. I got a text this week. And uh, somebody sent me a picture of their husband, not from this church, unbeliever, lives somewhere else. Sent me a picture of their husband laying on their dining room table and he looked dead. <laughs> and the question that was posed to me was, Dave, do you know a priest who could come and offer last rites? It was tongue in cheek. And I said, indeed I do. <laughs> the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and I quoted from Hebrews and then I said, the, the one who alone stands as mediator between God and man. No man can do anything for your husband. See that, that, that's a good use of technology. We're just putting Jesus out there. Uh, we're trying to preach the gospel in every way available. I'm certainly thankful for many of the words I find on websites and blogs and other things. But I realize, too, that in constant intake of those things, it can be dangerous and even defeatist. It can even work against us, I think. So build your brother in Christ up. Lift up Christ be mature. I, I came up with a new adage for my, my wall. Wordiness is worldliness. It is. I don't need to be wordy. I need to say more by saying less. 
And I need to be accountable. I, I would encourage you to do that, particularly with your children. Be accountable. Let your friends and family into your online world. Let, let them open your pages to them and, and, uh, and let them see what you're saying and, and let that be an encouragement to them. All right, number two, our second word is relationships. First word was word, communication. Second word is relationships. Our relationships have become mediated. That's what media is. It's something that carries something. It's something that stands in between something. Digital media, what are we talking about? We're talking about our screens. We're talking about our iPads, our cell phones, our computers. This is having, I think, a profound impact on our world, undoubtedly, in just our understanding of what life is about. You understand this, right, that Christ has called you to relationship with people who live in your physical locale. You do not live here by accident. You are not a global citizen. You live here among other people who live here, all of you sovereignly placed here by God to impact one another and the culture around us. So much of today's world is lived out there with people we used to know or we know through online connections, somebody in Russia, I told you about the kid from, <laughs> the kid from, uh, Toledo, Ohio, who's, who's, who's been calling me. I'm really thankful for it. But he needs a shepherd in his own town. I want to continue to be engaged and to help him, but I don't even get close to thinking that, yeah, I'm the guy for him. I'm not the guy for him. I'm a cyber shepherd. And there are certain benefits to cyber shepherds, but there are certain things that cyber shepherds can never do And see, what, what, what begins to happen when screens dominate our world, and they do dominate our world, don't they? They're in the back of your headrest. Think, think they're at the club, they're in your gym, they're in some people's bathrooms, they're in your bedroom, they're in the airport. You can't even go camping at Yosemite anymore without being constantly surrounded by screens warning you of the bears. It's just, they're just everywhere. It always cracks me up being a tenter, being the tenter that I am. That, and, and trust me, you know, when we're at the beach and the wind is howling and it's foggy and it's freezing, please invite me into your RV, okay? But there are RVs that have screens in them, and I think, this isn't camping. What have you gotten away from? How is this different? You just built your house, you, talk, you took your house into the woods, that's all you did. My bias is coming out, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry. There's, there, there, studies show that there has been a steep decline, and I think this is obvious to any one of us who've, who've, who've been out and about. There's a steep decline in people's capacity and willingness to carry on face-to-face -face relationships. How many of you have been at a dinner table in a restaurant and watched people sitting at the same table texting. Well, everybody's seen that, but what's weird is when you find out that they're texting each other, right? That's so strange. What has happened to us? 
We like the media. We like something between us. It's easier. It's way easier for me to say things with my thumbs than it is with my mouth. It's way easier for me to say it when you're out there rather than right here. Good things, bad things, whatever. But God didn't design life to work that way. And again, what I'm encouraging you to do is use these things in ways that are profitable and stop using them in ways that defeat the very things for which God has, to which God has called you. Let me ask this question. Can a case be made from Scripture that we were intended to live face-to-face? Not that that's just Dave's preference, but that, no, God's word says life is to be lived face-to-face. That's most desirable. That's what we're after. What do you got? Some of you are nodding. Rachel, what? Okay, do not forsake the gathering together as is the habit of some. Okay, yes. Amen. There's a passage. What else? Yeah, John. Right from the get-go. He didn't stay behind a cloud and shout, Adam. (laughs) God walked face-to-face with Adam and Eve. That's something. Laura. That passage I love most because it actually says that the state that we're in is not to be preferred, right? Now we see in a glass dimly a mirror darkly, but then it's going to be face to face and Paul's saying, that, that's what we're after. You see, yeah, Andrew, you got another one? Awesome. You guys got them all. You got everyone I wrote down here. Exactly. Paul, Paul says, look, I, I'm sorry I got to write. My, my heart is there. I, I can't wait to get to you. And please greet this person and this person. Romans 16 is a whole chapter of just names of people. He wanted, he wanted to be specifically greeted on his behalf. How his heart longed for them. I assure you, I have for you, Philippians, the affection of Christ. You ever try to send your affection through a text? You got a lousy heart emoji? That's garbage compared to a hug, right? So why do we go with the emoji? Well, I think most of the time it's because it's just sort of convenient. It's another reach out and touch you. And again, I'm not condemning that. I've sent those emojis. Sorry, men. I admitted it. Don't all the one another's of Scripture imply that we are going to be together a lot? We're going to know one another? our ups, our downs, our sins, our successes, all of those things. 
Yeah, Brian. Right, that serves as a good and a bad, doesn't it? The same thing. Yeah. That's a really good thing, but it also, I can listen to your sermons anytime, anywhere, and not right. not be with the people of God. Yeah, good point. Tim Challies refers to it, I like this, digital disincarnation. Here's what he says, quote, the self threatens to become disconnected disengaged from the body. We become digitally disincarnated people who live, who can live and quote unquote, he, he italicizes it, and be, we can be online. Which interestingly enough in another chapter he talks about that notion of onlineness as though it were a place. I'm on the internet as though it were a thing. He talks about how, how our relationships in the past were mediated by, or not mediated, but, but fostered by physical presence in a geographical spot. That's where you lived your life out. And now we've, we've, we've called the internet a thing and, and, and uh, the cyber, cyber world a, a place. And we have this notion again of, of global uh, citizenship, and it, 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 it's, it's a very, very poor substitute for living where you are. He says, we become digitally disincarnated people who can live and be online, present in, in a virtual mediated sense. Increasingly, who we are is no longer the person people meet face to face, but the mediated identity we have created. People craft their image, don't they? This is why Facebook, for, for, for many folks, becomes a very depressing place to be because everybody looks like they're living the dream. Nobody's taken the, the photograph of the mundane things in their life, just, just those things that have made them smile and all the great food they eat. They're always on vacation. They're always out to dinner. They're always on a beach. They're always the greatest at everything. I mean, it's just, right? The guy throws, shows, he shows, he doesn't show you the 100 shots he took and missed. He just posts the one that dude perfect threw from 300 yards and it went in. They go, whoa, he's amazing. No, he just got lucky. God was kind to him once. All right. We're never going to have enough time for questions. You, you, here, here's a, such a sad thing, you guys. There is this loss of community that was once found. Now everybody's spread into literally billions of little micro-communities where birds of a feather flock together. All the things that God intended that are good in us to be shared among others or things that are weak in us to be sharpened by others now we're losing that. You can just get your own little designer social room in which to meet out there, and everybody who sees life exactly as you do, you just hang out with those people. That's not good. What it teaches us in the long run is that the individual and in his or her interests becomes supreme, and that's a super lonely place to be. I dated a girl once in college. She was just like me. I thought, what could be better than marrying myself? 
right? She's like a Labrador retriever. She's just tongue, tongue hanging out, tail wagging all the time. And, and, and just thought it was the cat's meow. And as the relationship went on, I began to realize, no, you, you don't want to marry yourself. That's not good for either of you. What'd you say? And she dumped me, right. Okay. Thank you, Sean. Recommendations. We're going to pick up the pace. Avoid a pragmatic approach to life. Blow off this concept that everything's got to be convenient and easy. Resist that. Go to somebody's house. Pick up the phone. Make a phone call. Give them a half hour of your time, not, not three seconds to read your blip. Sacrifice some things some efficiency in your life. Did Christ call you to efficiency? Can anybody give me a commandment where Jesus said you must live your life to the maximum efficiency? Is speed a priority for Jesus? Was speed ever a priority for Jesus? I could think of maybe one place where he said, look, we've got to work while it is, is day, a night is coming. But you don't see Jesus, men, we're going to get super good shape so that we can sprint from Galilee to, to, to Jerusalem, right? That, that was not his mentality. In fact, much of the time, people were pounding him down his door saying, heal me, and he said, I'm out of here. i got to go pray, and i got to go to another village to preach because that's what I came to do. You see, there's a priority of life, but it wasn't with expediency and convenience and speed and efficiency. There are other things that matter. You're not an American fundamentally. You're a Christian fundamentally, which means some of your Americana is going to have to be taken to task, right? It is American to just, it is a value in our culture to just, you want to be seen as a hard worker, and what that means is you, you even work on vacation. You take your computer with you. You you pound nails when you're on, on a beach in Hawaii. You're just getting ready for the next, you know, you keep yourself practiced up. Whew, take a breather and engage life a little bit outside of just that very narrow vision. Other recommendations, commit to consistent time, cultivating face-to-face -face relationships. Understand God's design for the church. Iron sharpens iron. I know it's harder to conduct yourself in face-to-face -face relationships, but that's the way God designed it to be. He didn't want every confrontational conversation to be had over text or an email. They should be had in person. How much harder? How many of you have found yourself misunderstood in a text? Yeah, how many of you have found yourself saying, no, gee, I was trying to communicate the exact opposite in a text. It's very hard to write accurately, carefully, well to convey. God has given us body language, tone of voice, speed of tongue, all of these things to try and enrich our communication. You can't do all that through a text. It's very hard to write that well. In fact, you'll find if you try to write that well, you would have spent less time making a phone call. I've rewritten texts, I mean, tens of times trying to get it right, and I, I finally just have to tell myself, just call. 
Here's another adage for you, for my fridge. Talk before type. That's, that's, I'm, I'm trying to put it in bite-sized pieces. Talk before type. Number three, our word is distraction. You all get this. Digital media is massively distracting. We want to speed everything up. Ease and efficiency again. We can get more done faster. You think about how your phone seeks you out, how, how, how it interrupts, how it insists on your attention. You think about the speed with which our world has picked up. I was telling somebody this week, I just don't, I refuse to live in a world where I got to get an email back in a matter of minutes. I understand if I worked for Microsoft, I would have to do it because it would be required of me in my work. I get it. Some of you live in that world and I, I pray for you. I'm glad that I don't. Um, again, do you really want to speed up family? You go on vacation. It's you and the, the three precious gifts that God has given you in the back seat. One of them's got their head set on and they're watching a video in the back of the, your headrest. The other one's over there texting a friend and you're wondering who else is with us on this vacation, Right? Do you want to speed all that stuff up? You really, it's so nice. The kids don't say a word all the way there. <laughs> what? What are you on vacation for? <laughs> Again, uh, I know, sometimes it is, convenience is good. I'm, I'm not saying I never use it, but we should be thinking about it. You're going to send your mother an e-card on Mother's Day? Seriously? Come on. Happy Mom's Day! Dumb. Your mom's not appreciating that at all. You know, fill your face with pop tarts and a, a microwave. You're gonna, you, you, no. You can get really good gourmet food now in a microwave. Okay. Really? I want to speed that up. Uh, you think about all the joy of, of building things, and, or we can just run down to Ikea and, and get that piece of junk that'll last you about a year. You're never passing that down to anybody. Learn a skill. Dig in. Take some time. One of the ones that really gets me is like on vacation. When, when people aren't on vacation, they're not there. You go to the Grand Tetons and you spend all of your time thinking, oh, that'd make a great shot. I'm going to post that on Facebook. Listen, you've lost it. Don't do it. Just leave the stinking thing in the car. Better yet, leave it at home and don't talk to it for a, for a week. Go take in the Grand Tetons like you're Lewis and Clark. You know what I mean? If I send you a text and you're on vacation... Blow me off. And everybody else for that matter. Yeah, but what if somebody gets in a... Yeah, what if? Well, we, the world existed before that. Accidents happened before that. Okay. There's just... Why do I do this to myself? Recommendations. I, I just skipped about a page of other things under 
under distraction, but you get the idea. Here we go. Number one, grow in your awareness of how often you're distracted. Listen for the bing. Pay attention to how often you start down some path and then you're jerked one way or the other. Become aware of it so that now you can deal with it. Secondly, distance from your distractions. You can unsubscribe from things. You can delete things. You can unplug things. You can block things. Do it if it's unnecessary. Resist multitasking. Studies show you can't do it anyway. All you do is you get half attention on two things or a third of attention on three. Resist it. Just do one thing at a time. Begin to grow your concentration. Cultivate concentration. Discipline yourself. Do things that you get entirely lost in. Like you're just, the world just goes away for a while. That's so, pottery does that to me. I know it does it to Jim. I get on that wheel. It's not like I can't think of things. But I, I can't make a good piece of pottery. I probably should stop the sentence there. I can't make a good piece of pottery while I'm distracted. It's impossible. And so it's nice to lose myself in that. Do that once in a while. It's good for us. I would say read a real book, not a digital one. Mark it up. Dog ear the corners. It's good. Take up the task of memorizing, memorizing scripture. And I would encourage you to take a digital fast. You just have to have times in your day, in your week, where you go, no, not doing it. Not doing it. I'm not taking this on my walk. I'm going to go walk. I'm going to be with the Lord, and I'm not going to let others charge in. And you have Jesus' example and approval of that. What was his habit? What did he do? Long before daylight, what would he do? He went off to a place. That was his custom, to pray. He didn't do it at noon when people needed him and there were other things to do. He was not irresponsible. But he did go find time by himself away from the, from the, the, the demands of ministry. All right, next word, wisdom. This is simple enough, you know this, that wisdom is built on knowledge. We live in a world that is producing more information than we've ever had. And so people are informed. We know a lot. We know a little about a lot. Our our knowledge is an inch deep on a lot of things. And we're swimming in it. And I would say that we're even potentially drowning in it if, if... if, if that thing begins to drive at you like it does at me, check the news. Check the check, the check, the check, the Google it. It's just constant information. And, and I think in some ways we, we as a culture worship at the altar of information. We, we not only fear missing out, we fear not knowing. We fear being last to, the, to, to, to know something. We're sort of like, a, a, a trying, to, trying to illustrate this, we're sort of like a contractor who gathers wood and screws and tools and concrete. He gathers all that information, all that stuff into his garage, but he doesn't ever build anything. We're like that. We're, we're like hoarders who collect all kinds of stuff and we consider ourselves rich for the number of our possessions. But there, it's just clutter in the house that's doing nothing really to, to further life.
And this, by the way, I, and I'm going to take the time to, to say this, and perhaps this is self-serving, but I don't think so. I think it's for your good and mine, but it's become very challenging to shepherd the flock of God in the information age. It really has. It's become really challenging. At least a false teacher used to have to come into town and have a face-to-face conversation with people. Now, how do pastors have any idea? It's become very difficult to guard the flock of God from error. Now, I would couple that with it's also been very good to see the maturity that comes from people who sit under good teaching from outside. But again, there's maybe some downsides in that too. People often have higher regard for their cyber shepherds than they do for the shepherds that God has placed over their souls and in their congregation. And you go, yeah, well, times have changed. I go, well, isn't God sovereign? Isn't he omnipotent? Didn't he know there was going to be the digital age? He did, and yet he still called us in his word to, to what? Keep our eye on those who taught the word of God to us and considering their example, imitate them. You can't do that with R.C. Sproul. As much as I and you both have benefited from R.C. Sproul's teaching. I heard a pastor say this week, listening on this topic, that you're going to be held accountable for everything you take in. Are you a doer of the word or just a hearer? Oh, if you listen to seven sermons a day, you will never keep up. Does that make sense? What it does is it ends up making you just an information consumer. You can't possibly hang on to all of that and apply all of that. And so we end up with very theoretical theologians in the church, people who just like to banter around certain ideas, but it doesn't do anything in their progress of Christ-likeness. According to this preacher, he believed that one sermon a week was enough, more than enough. <laughs> I never heard that before. It was interesting to think about. I don't know that I agree with him, but I'm, I'm listening. Of course, the accessibility to immoral material has made pastoral ministry a, a real challenge in that respect. And the fact that we've bred a generation, really, of, and I think this is an impact of it, we've bred a generation of hearers and, and maybe not doers. Recommendations, pursue wisdom, limit your information intake, be discerning, don't be gluttonous. We end up with a lot of obese believers because there's a lot of food intake and not much exercise. Give particular attention to the shepherds and godly examples God has placed around you. That's Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. All right, finally, idolatry, and this is very brief, but we get this. Mankind has been, since the fall, in love with self. Digital media has enabled us to to foster that idolatry. We love being seen, we love being liked, we love being noticed, we love being the center of attention, we all want to be an influencer. According to uh, this, uh, this was Charlie's again, I drew this, he, he, says, he says, we live in a culture of exhibitionists and voyeurs. We like putting ourselves on display and we like to be a fly on the wall of people uh, who, are, who are doing any, any manner of things. 
This has only, in my opinion, intensified the artificiality of life. Uh, it's Shakespeare's old thing, all the world's a stage and men and women must act upon it. Everybody in our culture is into performance art. It's all becoming increasingly meaningless. I've watched kids at the high school. They have no clue why they're there. No idea why they're studying. They don't know where this road leads. It's all just become sort of form and fiction and who knows what life's about. And I, I, that's got to be behind. I heard the other day that one-third of girls of high school, sort of in your teenage years, between 13 and 19, one-third of them have considered taking their lives in the last year. One in three? You can't tell me that is not related to digital media intake and it's just a growing sense of the frivolity and meaninglessness of life if all of life is just entertainment you're living you're living through a screen what's the point what's the purpose the more you craft your image or make your brand the less you are really being put out there, right? It becomes an image of you that you have managed for public. You put it out there for public approval and now you are lost. You are nowhere to be found. Think of what, think of the arrogance being expressed in our culture. I've mocked the football player raising his hands after a tackle or the, uh, what a dabbing, whatever that's called. They've got all this stuff, right? My grandparents never had a picture where they smiled. I once asked my grandmother why. She said, well, we didn't know what to do. And I thought, huh? Yeah. She had no idea what to do. Oh. What's a photograph? <laughs> now, friends, think about, think about the, the pride. We don't even hesitate to take selfies sometimes of just our selfies. That's goofy. What? We used to be embarrassed by that kind of thing. I don't want to be mentioned. Now, I understand, the heart's the heart's the heart. Of course I wanted to be mentioned. But I would have never stepped up to a reporter after a basketball game in high school and say, well, I... Right? That just, you just didn't do it. Well, first I want to credit the other team. They really did an excellent job. They're, they're very good. And I'm just so grateful to have teammates who set good screens, got the ball to me at, at important times. And apart from them, I really couldn't do much. Our coaches are outstanding. You never walked up to it and just said, I'm, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. I'm willing to sit down with you for a half hour and talk about how I'm the guy. If I can be of help to you, I'm, I'm a humble guy. I just want to, I don't know if you heard it. The, oh, there was a particular presidential hopeful on the, on the stage last week who said, well, with all humility, and he went on to talk about himself, and the crowd laughed. <laughs> That's not good. Yeah. Uh, friend, God's call for you, get this, is to forget yourself to die to yourself, to deny yourself. He died so that you might live for him who died and rose again on your behalf. For me to live is Christ. 
we have got to wake up and move away from this notion of self-promotion. It only promotes hypocrisy, foolishness. Recommendations, yeah. Be aware of your heart's lust for attention and admiration. Worship every last drop of worship on this planet, in this universe, belongs to him. You deserve none. I deserve none. It's not wrong to affirm people and to express your gratitude for them. That's not what I'm saying. But to draw praise to yourself is sin. To draw attention to yourself is sin. That's the issue with modesty. It's not about your skirt length. It's about you propping yourself up to be viewed. God is the one who is viewed. Number two, be real and be honest. Don't fabricate an online identity. Don't craft your brand. Reject all that nonsense. Also, refuse to participate and promote the glorification of men. Don't join in. Don't play the game. And finally, and most importantly, actively seek to lift up Christ in your online posts. That is your goal. Your goal is to promote Jesus in all that you do. Not yourself, not some other human being, him. And I'll just close with this verse and reminder from the Apostle Paul. All things are lawful for me, but what? Not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. All right. Let me uh, hand these. Pretty good, huh, Julia? Yeah. Noah, Lucas, can you, can you guys pass these out for me? So there are 35 of these. I think there are more, so maybe one per family. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Lord, we're thankful for our time. We're grateful again for you. Lord, you are the center of this universe. Help us to live, to preach, to promote, to declare. Lord, to lift you up that others might be drawn unto you. That's our heart's desire. In Christ's name, amen.